Welcome to the Bourbon Library, hosted by the Bayless Brothers. A spirited conversation always served neat as barrel proof of our family bond. Grab a glass. The episode starts now. On the occasion, you meet someone younger and smarter and perhaps a little better looking than you are, and they aren't one of your younger brothers. Well, it's important to listen up. For today's episode, I intend to do just that. We had the good fortune to speak with Caleb Kilburn of Peerless Bourbon, a classic bourbon brand rebuilt with his fresh energy. Caleb is a respected figure in the bourbon industry, but some might not say he's a living legend yet. Why? Simple. This brilliant distiller simply hasn't lived long enough. We know, just like a great bourbon, every legend takes time. And in the case of Caleb, we know he's on a path towards becoming a true bourbon icon. Having gotten his start in college with a natural inclination towards the detailed work of distillation, Caleb rose the ranks fast within his mentorships, landing a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity with Carson and Corky of Peerless, a partnership with the intention of relaunching DSP KY50, a.k.a. Peerless Bourbon. After a multi-decade hiatus, the ancestors of Peerless Bourbon wanted to build something from the ground up, and Caleb was the right mix of brains and bronze and bourbon to do it. He's as humble a guy as you will meet, and it was so fun to chat. If our entire conversation could be distilled down to one question, it would simply be, what does it mean to be peerless? More on this with Caleb in just a moment. So to jumpstart our conversation with Caleb, we needed to ask him a very important question. What is a master distiller? And how the hell do you become one before you're even 30. Here's what Caleb had to say about it. The term master distiller still doesn't feel right coming out of my mouth to describe myself. When you talk about like Jimmy Russell and Jim Rutledge and like these industry icons, not just like celebrities, but celebrities among celebrities, like they are like the A-list people. And when you talk about these master distillers, it's hard not to just have this awe, this aura about them. And when I started, I was like, Nope, that's, I'm not a master distiller. I I have to work for much, much longer and achieve much, much more before I can even think about that. So uh, myself and Carson Cork, you're the family ownership of Peerless, agreed on head distiller being my title. Well, uh, when we first come out with a two-year-old rye, it hadn't been on the market for seven or eight months. And we were actually one number 15 whiskey in the world by Whiskey Advocate for that year. 2017 and it was the youngest spirit the youngest distillery youngest distiller to ever make that list and so it was just okay we're doing pretty good we're doing pretty good uh and something that first and foremost i do have to throw out there we make every single drop of whiskey ourselves we don't outsource it we don't do any smoke and mirrors as far as just grab from over here put our label here it is every single drop is ran through our steel, stored in our rick houses, and bottled under our supervision. So it's truly something that we own and operate as far as the accolades that we're earning. Right. So uh, part of the double-edged sword of that is when we're a, we started production in 2015, in 
2017, we only had two year old product. We had a ton of people saying, where's your 10 year old <laughs> time. And like, that's the future. And that now is the, the, the two make sure we had the three. And so when we had the three, uh, we actually were able to get our rye placement as the number four American whiskey against bourbon and all other uh, generated whiskeys. Uh, we won the number four world for that in Forbes as a three-year-old. Following year, we release our bourbon. We get the, with our bourbon, we get top with Kentucky bourbon uh, by Whiskey Magazine. And uh, that same year, uh, we were named the 2019 Craft Producer of the Year. Not a national, not only the national award, but actually got to fly over to London and accept the global award for that. Uh, hmm. So it was just crazy to uh, be globally recognized within your field, uh, what, four years into uh, the career? And kind it, was of high everybody. Point, it was at that point, uh, Carson Corky saw the writing on the wall. We'd already won the North America Award uh, that year at the company Christmas party. Uh, I don't think anything of it. We're all around. This is just good old times, you know. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, they had invited my parents. I didn't think anything of it because it's just something Corky would do. He would want family members there and uh, everyone else had family there. And so, my, oh, my parents are there. Okay, great. <laughs> and then uh, right as we're getting ready to do our little elf, white elephant exchange where everybody has their junk gag gift that we're trading and stealing and everything else, uh, he stands up and he makes a little speech and uh, someone's like, you need to sit down. I'm like, what's happening? <laughs> and uh, it was at that point he gives a little speech and presents me with this giant stainless steel placard that says Caleb Kilburn master distiller and he had a stack of business cards for me and said master distiller and I started crying and they started crying and it was just it it really is a dream come true. Uh, my grandmother's heart broke because she thought that she was going to get a doctor out of the deal, but you know, <laughs> different MD, different type of. <laughs> You're a prodigy. Let's I don't there. know about that. <laughs> yeah, what, what, what kind of pressure comes along yeah. with that? I feel like <laughs> I just I just continue to make whiskey best I can. As I mentioned in the beginning, Caleb is a humble guy, which makes sense considering his background. He grew up working on his family dairy farm in Kentucky, far from the world of world-class bourbon making. But he draws a lot of parallels between the two. And it really comes down to one thing, hard work. I'll go back all the way, way back when. Uh, I, I grew up on a dairy farm. Mm -hmm. So sanitary process, mechanical systems, uh, basic repairs, uh, sanitary pro I mean, it was all stuff that I grew up with. Uh, so I thought it was normal for uh, people to see their parents working seven days a week, repairing, using their hands, fixing. And when people hear dairy, they think, oh, big, massive operation, veterinarians on staff, uh, 50 or 60 people employed. And it was not. It, we were uh, milking 50 or 60 head of cattle at any given time. Uh, only child, no siblings. Wow. Uh, there, as far as people on the farm, it was mom, dad, uh, my grandfather was in a farming accident, but he's, uh, he had one arm and he worked twice as hard with it to wow. make up for the difference. Wow. Wow. And then we uh, typically would have a revolving, uh, farmhand with just one at a time. 
so it wasn't something where it was, okay, we're owning the dairy, we're in the driver's seat. No, it was very much blood, sweat, tears. Uh, if something breaks, you can't afford to fix it unless you can fix it. So it's just it's an amazing way to grow up. Yeah. Uh, when I was in school, though, I, I had no intentions of being a dairy farmer. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was an amazing way to grow up, but I fell in love with physics and biology and chemistry and how uh, electronics worked and how all these different engineering fields. And I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I, uh, I knew that I, when I was in college, I loved physics and I loved biology and I loved chemistry. And it was at that point in my life that I became introduced to the science of making whiskey. So typically, uh, people uh, either have some family pedigree where it's almost a birthright to be a distiller. Sure. Or uh, they are like, I've worked in the industry, around the industry. I've, I've partook in bourbon for 20-some years, and now I'm ready to get my start into it. I didn't even like it drinking when I started. I, I was a goody two-shoes. Uh, believe it or not, when you see your parents work seven days a week on the clock all the time, they don't consume alcohol. I didn't see alcohol consumed. I, I thought that was something that was over there that was just different. Sure. Uh, it wasn't for more reasons. It was just practicality. You can't work that hard and partake. <laughs> so uh, uh, when I became interested in science of distilling, I didn't like the way it tastes. I didn't like anything to do with it. I was above 21. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I fell in love with the science, how you make it, how it's just really, I like to say it's an art built on science because you have to have this deeply technical understanding to be able to paint your portrait uh, when it comes to the actual product you're generating. So uh, I started going out, I started shadowing people, I worked my way through distiller courses, uh, worked my way into several apprenticeships, uh, and through that i thought I was coming to a young story called Kentucky Peerless just to get some experience. And before it was over, I was uh, uh, so bold as to basically have taken over uh, the installation of all the process and production areas. And uh, Carson Corky or the family ownership of Peerless took a risk on uh, at that point, a 22, 23 year old uh, kid who thought he knew what was up and uh, <laughs> they took a massive risk on me and I'm, <laughs> I'm just glad it paid off for him, to be honest. <laughs> a super hardworking son of dairy farmers makes his way from the science lab to the Rick house, but not without a vision. We were curious how Caleb mixes and marries the idea of science and art when it comes to bourbon. Uh, when you look at a chef, uh, a chef doesn't just know okay, if I heat this up, it's going to cause this protein to go through this, or uh, charring it does this. It's understanding the flavors and how you're able to marry them up. And in the same way, just understanding, oh, I want it to taste like this, or I want these notes to kind of play together without having any technical understanding how to achieve it, it, it's the utility. Uh, you You can't have the vision without the artistic part of the brain. You can't have the utility, the ability to carry it out without the scientific just in my opinion. Sure. Yeah. Well, it seems like that passion too, right? I mean, art, art, I mean, we're, we're, we're creators and it's like art like has to drive. You have to have something that drives you for the long haul because you're doing something that, that requires time with, without inevitability, unless you, unless you come up with something in the lab that you can do it overnight, which I know people are trying, which is crazy, but uh, you know, you're, you're doing a, a thing that uh, a lot of history to it. And, and a lot of it is like predicting the future. So like that, you have to have something driving you, it seems like. The joke that Corky used to tell that I'm not sure it was so much of a joke is just kind of a 
truth with a little laugh after it. When I started, he used to always say, you got four years of job security and then we'll see how you did. (laughs) (laughs) I like to think of master distillers as time travelers. Their vehicle, of course, is in the barrel. Caleb has a unique advantage. He's rebuilding a classic brand, one with a rich history. He gets to look back and be inspired by those who came before him with the story that's still being written. Even though it is a new product, a new distillery, uh, uh, we've started off with Young Spirits and now we're at four and five and six year old product. Um, it's actually a really old distillery. It's not a new distillery, it's a revival of a really old one. So Peerless is owned and operated from 1889 until 1917 under the uh, watchful eye of a man named Henry Craver. He was the sole owner and operator of this distillery. Uh, he uh, titled his product Peerless, a uh, representative of its position within the industry. He wanted to not necessarily make the most whiskey, but he wanted to make the best whiskey. Mm. So he, uh, he continued to sell, operate. He was a rather entrepreneurial fellow, uh, having his fingers into breweries and theaters and hotels and insurance agencies and so many different uh, facets. Uh, he was a very gifted man. Uh, but nobody could overcome the things that would be coming ahead. Uh, during the height of the First World War, it was more important to feed citizens, to feed civilians, than it was to make whiskey. So he voluntarily participated in a uh, holdout. They stopped making new whiskey. A uh, year or so later, Prohibition hit. Uh, he respected it. He uh, shut down all production new facility. Uh, he, he didn't make a drop after he had shut down for the uh, First World War. Uh, distillery production side was dormant, but he continued selling his aging inventory as a medicinal whiskey. Mm. So you'd go, you'd get your prescription every so many days for your headache or your anxiety or any number of things that would be ailing you. <laughs> you get whiskey to cure it. And it would be the father, the son, the, the daughters, the wife, everybody, oh, aunt needed a little pint. Uh, you can get your whiskey just to help get you over the hump. So uh, that was how uh, a lot of his whiskey was uh, shared and moved about. But eventually, without the new production coming in to replenish it, it just went by the wayside. So the family had a decision to make. They could either sell the business, sell the names, everything, like so many did, mm-hmm. but they felt that it was a part of their heritage, their history. So they kept it within the family dormant for 98 years until the region owner's great-grandson, uh, another entrepreneurial fellow, uh, someone who inherited that gene from his great-grandfather, decided to self-fund and rebuild the distillery, not in Henderson, Kentucky, where the original one was, but here in Louisville, because the family had moved to Louisville and the rise of distillery culture, uh, Whiskey Row was making the comeback. We felt that this was going to be the good home for Kentucky Peerless. Mm-hmm. So uh, other than uh, this history, this heritage, uh, this story that was brought to the table, uh, and I have another touch on that point, uh, there wasn't a mash bill, there wasn't a recipe, other than just this promise of let's make whiskey as good as we can, and the rest will take care of itself. So that rich history and that promise of quality is the foundation for everything that we do. Uh, but there, it wasn't a, a set of handcuffs saying, use this material, use this, right, use, right. use this. And it's actually quite rewarding me as a creator because there was a clean slate. I didn't have to 
take some practices that may not be optimal for the product that we wanted to make and just force them into the equation. Right. So, um, something that's really cool that another thing that we're able to reclaim from that history, uh, back when the distillery was originally running, it was obviously very, very, very old. So they were the 50th licensed distillery. So they were DSP KY 50. Still for its plant, Kentucky 50. Well, when the distillery shut down, that number actually lay dormant for again, 98 years until Corky was actually able to convince the federal government to reissue that number to him. Uh, it's awesome. the same family, same brand name. Uh, and we were able to get them to approve that. Now in context, if we would have got a new DSP number, we would have been in the 20,000s. So <laughs> it's a little different to be able to say, yeah, I'm 50 as opposed to 20,050. Sure. Which might not fit on the bottle as well. Not quite as well. You'd have to end up doing multiple rows. <laughs> so with all that history in mind, what, how do you approach like what this whiskey is going to taste like and what are we tasting right now when we're, we're sipping the, the, your bourbon? So we are tasting the bourbon. This is barrel strength and uh, usually it's around 110 proof. I don't know the exact batch that you all received. We have a 109.4. 109.4. So this particular batch, mine's different, but the same hallmarks are going to be there. And I'll tell a little bit about how we go about making it. Um, it should be, everyone uh, turns their nose up when someone describes something as smooth, but how else can I say something that isn't harsh? Uh, yeah. yeah. Despite its strength, it doesn't drink like it's a high proof whiskey. It's very palatable, it's very easy. Uh, when you approach the nose, there's a cedar, there's a cinnamon, the citrus. Uh, when you put it on the palate, it's got this very bright, almost like honeysuckle or uh, floral nectar element to it, honey. It just, it flows across the palate. You have these little dustings like dark cocoa or dark chocolate. You have this little uh, allspice fizzle at the end. It's just, it's a really well-balanced product. And when we were sitting down trying to figure out how to create this, like I said, I didn't have this set of use this, use this, use this, and try to make it good. Instead, I was able to pull on my experience from going around the industry, uh, shouting different stillers, different cookers, uh, pulling ideas from even different disciplines and applying them here. Uh, I was able to kind of cherry pick all the things I thought would make a good whiskey and put them into practice. Uh, some of those things are very consistent across the industry. Everyone likes having a clean uh, fermenter. Everyone likes having a a uh, clean beer. Uh, nobody wants to mishandle this or that, but there are several practices that are very, uh, they're a sharp deviation from the industry, sure. uh, either because it's a practice that was abandoned because it was too costly or because it was a, uh, too difficult to execute plan way back in the day and they've never rehashed it. They've never went against the grain to try this more difficult procedure. Mm -hmm. And that difficult one I'm talking about is actually a sweet mash. Mm -hmm. So for reference, when you're talking about, everyone knows sour mash whiskey within the industry, but no one really knows what it means as far as uh, on the consumer level. It's like, oh, sour mash, here it is. Yeah. Um, when you talk about sour mash, you're taking a piece of a prior fermentation, a prior distillate to use as a starter for the next. Mm -hmm. uh, what this does is it's similar to a sourdough bread in that it has a starter, as a healthy population, you use ready to go, 
uh, utilizing this uh, stillage that backs it, which offsets your waste stream. It uh, contributes quite a bit of energy to it because it's very hot. There's all sorts of reasons to use a sour mash in that it reduces your waste stream, reduces your utility bill, your water bill, and it's a little bit more forgiving of process because when it adds this acidity back, this back set, uh, what it does is actually makes the yeast a little, it gives the yeast a head start over the bacteria, over the microbes, the things that could potentially skew and offset that flavor. And this was super important 150 years ago when all these processes were becoming standardized. The reason being, they didn't know that yeast was an ingredient. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about, uh, yeah, I'm just going to saw off the arm to keep the gangrene from getting it. Errors of uh, biology and understanding of these processes. Let's get some leeches on you and we're going to get you fixed right up. I mean, it's just <laughs> microbiology has become light years since this became the standard practice. So if you're talking 150 years ago, absolutely. Best way of making whiskey ever in the world. We revolutionized the industry using this back set. Uh, the only downside to it is when you use that back set, it produces a sour gritty note, similar to a sourdough bread, uh, that while it's great in your French toast at the uh, local cafe, it can actually become a little pungent when you distill it. It can become too concentrated. Hmm. So the way around, I, I'm going on the round circle here. I'm coming back around. Good. No, I, we no, love I, it. I'm, I'm right. I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you. So when you distill sour mash, you have to be very careful to that sour mash note not to become too concentrated. Reason being, it'll be off-putting. So the way you clean up that distilled is instead of distilling it at a medium proof, you end up distilling it at a higher proof, closer to 140, 145. And in doing so, you end up stripping out much of that sour mash note, but you also have some collateral damage where you're stripping out some fruits, some florals, and some grain character. In addition to that, you're also distilling at a higher proof that requires more water to come down. So you start with more neutral and then you dilute further. So you're losing on two different fronts. Mm. Uh, so all that is enabled and propped up by sour mash. Mm. So in contrast, we use sweet mash. So we start with fresh corn, fresh rye, fresh barley, first generation yeast, use it one time, get rid of it. Uh, mm. And what this does is instead of producing that sour note, it's omitted. So now I have this very sweet, very floral, honey rich, uh, fruit rich beer that when I go to distill it, where I'm not having to worry about cleaning it up, I can actually shift that to a lower distillation proof, distilling closer, uh, many times actually under 130. And wow. what this does is it produces, it yields a lot more grain character, uh, a lot of hardiness, the mouthfeel is unreal. Uh, get some of those organic acids that are turned into fruits and florals and all types of herbaceous notes. Uh, you get a ton of yeast character, it's very bready. Uh, you just get more flavor from that lower proof distillate. And again, that's enabled by the fact that I've omitted that sour mash note. Right. Well, also, this is where I get to add less water to get into the barrel. So that is sour mashing and why we do that. I don't want to completely trash sour mash because there is a ton of really good sour mash whiskey sure. made. We just feel that there's just a little bit left on the table yeah. that we can harvest that isn't economical for the sour mash people to do because it is a lot more expensive. It requires a lot more Yeast to get started requires more time and utilities. Uh, we don't get to minimize that waste stream because we're not replacing fresh water with strainings from our stillage, the right. leftover uh, uh, old yeast and water and nutrients. Uh, definitely give you a leg up on that next fermentation. It's just a different way of going about it. Caleb knows his stuff. 
and we love getting into the details with him. We were curious about something that seems kind of specific to Peerless. They don't proof down. Why? Let me ask you this way. Um, do you all drink coffee or like, what, what's your drink of choice? What's your vice other than whiskey? Uh, black coffee. Whiskey yeah. and new coffee, yeah. Okay, okay. Man, black coffee's a tough one. That doesn't really help my example, but I'll, I'll try it anyway. <laughs> okay, let, let's say hypothetically you've got your cup of coffee, and let's say you've got it just perfect, just the way you like it. Let's say you have a little sugar, a little cream. We'll, we'll sure. deviate in that way. And <laughs> let's say you get it, uh, you, you got about a third of the glass drunk. Say uh, a well-intending waiter just happens to come by, and top off your perfect coffee with water. <laughs> right. Is it going to be as flavorful as it was? No. Is it going to have the mouthfeel that it is? No. Is it going to be sweet? No. Is it going to have the color? No. It just, it takes so much character away from what you've worked so hard to create. Yeah. So from our perspective, we don't want to do that with whiskey. When you talk about, you can store whiskey as high as 125 proof. And you can serve it as low as 80. So, uh, during maturation, typically it's going to climb above that 125, but for a math example, let's keep it 125. When you add water to dilute 125 proof whiskey down to 80 proof, over a third of the final product is water that never touches mm -hmm. the barrel, the process, the distiller's mm -hmm. loops or anything. It's just diluting what's there. So from a business standpoint, if I can take a barrel and instead of getting 200 bottles out of it, I can get 300 that's obviously a pretty financially good decision. Sure. Downside is you've just sold a lot of water. The problem I see when you talk about uh, proofing down the whiskey beyond just the obvious of adding the water, uh, you run into a situation where some of the fats, the oils, lipids, things that were very happy in that ethanol-rich solution mm -hmm. now will actually start to clump, coagulate when you add that water. They're no longer soluble. So what ends up happening is you end up in mild cases with this clouding, and in major cases, clumping that looks like dust bunnies in the bottom of the bottle. Obviously not very appealing at the consumer level. So the way a distiller would go about this uh, to prevent it from happening in your hands is that I would go ahead, I'd cool it down, I'd get it below uh, usually 20 degrees. Oh. I'd hold it for a while. I'd force that coagulation in my plant. I'd strip it out and I'd serve a pristine, beautiful product that doesn't have any fat or oil or lipid in it. Well, I, I eat a lot of stuff. That tastes good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it does. I mean, it yeah. has that mouthfeel and everything. So in addition to watering it down, you end up stripping out a lot of what's good within the product. So it's a beautiful, aesthetically pleasing uh, whiskey. It's just very light on flavor. So right. that's the whole why we don't like watering down. So instead what we do is we actually go into the barrel out of what we feel is a very palatable proof of 107. We allow that whiskey to mature. We allow it to age uh, by adding the water on the front end. What it actually does is it more efficiently pulls out the caramels, the vanillas, the cinnamons, all the good notes from that barrel, actually leaving behind some of the harsher oils and tannins. Mm. And at the end of the maturation, we don't have to do anything to it. We don't mm. chill it. We don't uh, add water to it. We don't color it. We, we don't do anything. There's not that half that stuff is legal anyway, uh, <laughs> but we just want it to be true to the whiskey we're serving. For April Fool's Day, E.H. Taylor announced their Door Ajar series. It's going to be a bottle of barrels 
that were in one of the Rick houses that <laughs> the door was left slightly ajar and often not closed and created a very distinct tasting bourbon. This was, of course, an April Fool's joke, one in which was presented to our group, our bourbon library group, as a fact, a real life fact by the one and only Devin Bayless. Uh, we've learned since then, of course, with egg on our face, it was just a joke, just an obvious, obvious joke. But it did cause us to wonder, how much does the environment, the barrels, these sort of factors outside of mash bill and distillation process impact bourbon? There is so many variables that occur uh, even before that barrel's ever filled. Uh, thank to, I mean, uh, you two are obviously same species uh, near one another. <laughs> are you all perfectly identical in every single way? I'm seven years older, not as smart. Yeah, <laughs> seven years old, not as smart. Well, trees, when you talk about these oak trees, uh, they're on, they're in different soils, different water conditions, different uh, sides of the mountain. They get different amounts mm. of trees. Maybe they're top, maybe they're solo. Uh, they can have different growth structures. Maybe it's very tight growth to where it's, uh, or very tight rings where it's very slow growth. Or maybe it was uh, in a field open off to itself and it had very large deposits of sugar and caramel. Uh, the other side of this is it's not just how well the uh, tree did as far as how much sugar, how much spice it has within its staves. Uh, the tighter the ring pattern, the better the container it makes as far as actually holding in the whiskey. Hmm. But it also is going to insulate out and hold out uh, the air that needs to breathe in and out of the barrel. So you may have one that's really tight ring that needs additional time to mature because it hasn't been able to bring oxygen to help oxygenize mm. or uh, oxidize that the organic acids to create those fruity and floral characters. So before the barrels ever even made, it is more unique than what you could ever imagine. Then you go into the pack. Okay, well, how do the how does each ring pattern, uh, each tree moisture level, uh, react differently with not only the drying process but even the barrel making process? Uh, how deep does that char penetrate? Does it get this note this hot to activate it, or is it actually burn it away? I mean, there's just so much that goes on in it. Uh, when you go into the barrel rickhouse, the airflow, the orientation of the barrel, the temperatures, how it flows, how it works, it's just immensely different. So uh, while I'm certain that uh, something as little as a ray of sunshine may seem insignificant, I've heard crazier things. Because you yeah, think if, uh, granted, with the way the uh, we go around the sun, the sun may be coming in slightly different ways, but sure. for the argument's sake, let's say hypothetically that barrel gets a sizable portion of sunlight every day of the year, or at least through the hot months, well, that could significantly raise the temperature of that barrel Granted, wood is not a great uh, energy transfer surface, but it's better than nothing. Mm -hmm. Some mm -hmm. heat's better than no heat as yeah. far as just this argument. So uh, it's very possible that it could have gave it a more oaky or a more prominent flavor. It could have drove uh, that breathing in and out a little harder because it gets hotter, hot in the middle of the day and then conceivably would gain more oxygen at night. I mean, there are so many variables that it's just, uh, I don't want to say it's poorly understood, but it's, I mean, it's just this great mystery that we entrust our whiskey into these barrels and pray that Mother Nature delivers on her promise. And uh, luckily she does. 
<laughs> I had never considered the the, the trees, the trees never... growing. As, like, uh, and that's incredible. That's such an amazing point. <laughs> I legitimately can't stop thinking about this idea. The trees, where they grow, how they grow, who they grow with, and the impact that has on the bourbon that I love. It's amazing. This is what I find so fascinating about Caleb. He thinks about these things. He wrestles with these things. And that's why he's a master. And it's no doubt that the good folks at Peerless saw this. They know he's a living legend. His story's just being told now. And I'm excited for that story. That story, that, that message that's living in the bottle. That, that, that says... Even after all of these years, after decades off, after businesses come and go and fail and start over, the ashes, they mean something. And if you restart the fire and you get that still going, you can make a great bourbon. You might just have to be peerless. And with that, I'd like to bid you adieu. This has been another installment of the Bourbon Library. Please raise your glasses and repeat after me. To drink is to live. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to our show. If you like what you heard, kindly take the time to rate and review our show wherever you're listening. It will help us grow and make more episodes. Remember to follow us on Spotify and tell your friends about the Bourbon Library. Do you have a bourbon you think we should try? Let us know, and we might just feature it on a future episode. And we'll be sure to give you a shout-out. If you're listening from Spotify, Anchor, or Apple Podcasts, turn on those notifications so you know when we drop a new episode. All right, bourbon lovers. Until next time. To drink is to live. <laughs>